0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 1st, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, at least in the United States, the early summer seemed to be a time of great promise. Case rates were low, vaccinated people were feeling a new freedom, but this has changed more recently. In many parts of the country, the number of infections have increased dramatically, there are more hospitalizations, and there are more deaths. All of this is occurring against the backdrop of increasing rates of vaccination. So
1: what's happening? Steve, there are a couple of things occurring at the same time, and it's been a bit difficult to tease them apart. First, and I suspect foremost, the increasing case rate followed not long after COVID restrictions were almost completely lifted. For those of our listeners who are not in the U.S., That meant that virtually everything went back to the way that it was before. No lockdowns, no mask requirements, no physical distancing. So while the CDC recommended that restrictions be lifted only for those who were vaccinated, in practice, essentially everything went away. Things aren't completely back to normal, as many individuals are taking their own precautions and different facilities have their own rules. In fact, many businesses haven't returned at all. Nonetheless, dropping restrictions has provided a great opportunity for transmission to occur.
2: Eric, I think many of us two months ago, with vaccine administration rates rising rapidly, low incidence across the U.S., the summer coming and physical distancing being implicit in that, and historically many respiratory viruses spread less well during summer months as opposed to winter and the crowding. There was great optimism that things could go back to normal, as you say, and we would keep the infection at bay. One of the key things I think we've learned is respect the pathogen. In this case, SARS-CoV-2, the virus. As we have limited data to understand its biology, we need to be careful about the policies we set. This virus is trying to spread more rapidly I don't think it really wants to cause lots of illness because asymptomatic transmission enables it to spread more easily rather than symptomatic transmission, so that we are witnessing its own evolution as it figures out how to adapt us better and spread more easily. And we have to understand these properties of the virus in relation to human behavior. And as our behavior changes, the virus will try to take advantage of the interactions we have. And so the occurrence of larger crowds and gatherings early in the summer to celebrate holidays and also just reopening allowed ample opportunity for transmission, which sadly we've witnessed. And as we look forward, we have to think about this as schools reopen, restaurants reopen, and other aspects of society reopens to try to prevent transmission while we get back to some semblance of normalcy, but really respect the virus so that it does not take advantage of our behaviors.
1: Lindsay, you make a very interesting point. And I think that one of the markers of that reopening is that we've seen an increase in all respiratory viruses, not just SARS-CoV-2. In fact, this is a particularly big year for viruses like RSV, which is being transmitted at a high rate. So When we drop precautions, we see more spread of everything, including COVID-19.
2: So, Eric, I think it's really important
1: to think more
2: broadly than just SARS-CoV-2. And as you point out, RSV and other respiratory viruses had a very bad year last year, likely related to our severe precautions. And they're now rebounding. And they're rebounding off-season. It's normally increased in the winter months, RSV, for example, which means we have to understand a lot more about the biology of these other viruses, particularly as it intersects with human
0: behavior. So the rationale behind discontinuing many of these COVID restrictions was that vaccination would help limit both the spread and the severity of disease. Has
1: this been true? I'd say that the answer is yes, but quantifying that effect has been difficult. It's important to remember that while vaccination rates have been relatively high in some parts of the country, they're quite low in others. Even in areas with high vaccine coverage, there are still a large number of unvaccinated individuals. The unvaccinated make up the vast majority of people who are getting severely ill. Even here in Massachusetts, where vaccination rates are on the higher end, the cases that are severe enough to require ICU care are overwhelmingly among unvaccinated individuals. So, it's certainly true that the severity of disease has been diminished by vaccination.
2: Steve, I think you raise a very important point, which is what is the goal of vaccination? Is it to prevent significant illness or to stop transmission? Both are important. Both have very important individual and public health value, but they may actually have different biology and different requirements of our interventions. And I think at least to date, it does look like those who have been vaccinated continue to have a significant decrease in severity of illness, which is the primary goal of our initial vaccination programs. How best to understand the impact on transmission is an ongoing effort. And as we have recently seen in the news from the Barnstable event, the outbreak in the Cape Cod area around July 4th, related to gatherings and parties likely, that one can see significant transmission without necessarily significant severity of illness and hospitalization. And I think that's something we have to better understand. And as we understand it, it may require different interventions for the individual and the community to block those different processes. But very important to think about individual protection versus community protection and
1: spread. I think it's important to remember that one of the goals of vaccination, as you said, Lindsay, was to prevent serious disease. That was setting something of a low bar because we know that some other vaccines, at least, do prevent or limit infection. And so preventing infection has always been an aspirational goal, it's just a harder one to hit. And until recently, It does seem that the vaccines have been successful at preventing infection, but there clearly has been a change.
2: Agreed, Eric. I think our seeing the very low incidence in highly vaccinated communities in the end of the first quarter, second quarter of this year likely was related in part, if not major part, to vaccination. And then alterations in the virus and human behavior may have contributed to the uptick that we're seeing now. But transmission is very important to block,
0: as we have done with other vaccines over time. So, Bottom line, clearly a number of vaccinated people are being infected. So what's going on?
1: I think that there are two hypotheses out there. One is that the vaccine potency might be decreasing over time. Certainly, antibody levels do slowly decline with time but it is difficult to interpret those numbers. Remember, we don't know if there's a magic cutoff value that defines protection, and we don't even know if antibody is actually the immune factor that is primarily providing protection. For example, T cell responses might play a role, and the number of memory B cells might be as or even more important than the level of antibody. That makes it difficult to guess if immunity is waning to an extent that would considerably increase the susceptibility of enough people to give you the kinds of numbers that we're seeing. But I suspect a more important contributor is the rise of the Delta variant. Even though in vitro assays suggested that vaccinated individuals made a reasonable immune response to the Delta variant, it seems that vaccinated individuals are less protected.
2: So Eric, in thinking about what may be going on, as you've alluded to, there are host factors and viral factors. And as we think of the host factors, there's a change in behavior and the change in endogenous protection, which as you suggest is waning immunity over time. With the waning immunity over time and which part of the immune system is most important, it's quite complicated to measure because even measuring antibody, what's being measured? There are binding ELISA's, there's neutralization, there are multiple different epitopes. So it's not as if one assay tells us truth. There are a lot of different ways that this is measured, and that then requires a sophisticated interpretation to understand what it means. There's also the issue of compartments, in that my immune response may be strong systemically, but not necessarily as strong in my nasopharynx. So Acquisition of the pathogen with local replication in my mucosa, but not necessarily systemic illness, may occur depending on the nature quality of the immunity and how it's able to penetrate key sites, such as the site of acquisition. So it's complicated, but I think the combination of potentially waning immunity, of change in our behavior, so a greater infection force, and then the virus itself, perhaps being less susceptible because it has learned how to evolve in response to the immune barrier that's been raised through natural infection or vaccine-elicited infection. So it's a complicated process, fascinating on the biologic side, and it requires us to be very thoughtful in how we intercede to prevent further transmission.
0: So the increased number of cases has been easy to measure, but we haven't had a lot of solid peer-reviewed data on the relative risk in vaccinated and unvaccinated people since this rise in cases began. But today we published a report on the experience of one healthcare system. What did we learn here?
1: This study comes from the University of California, San Diego Health Center, where vaccination rates have been relatively high. By July, 82% of the workforce had been vaccinated. All of these had received one of the two mRNA vaccines, either BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, or mRNA1273, the Moderna vaccine. Staff aren't tested routinely, but there is a low threshold for testing for symptoms or for known exposures. During June, there was a sharp rise in the number of documented cases, which coincided with the two changes we discussed earlier. For one, California dropped its mask mandate in June, And secondly, the Delta variant appeared. The rise among employees occurred in both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. Virtually all of the cases were caused by the Delta variant. The number of vaccinated workers who were diagnosed with COVID-19 rose from only five in June to 94 in July, while during the same period, cases in unvaccinated staff went from 11 to 31. Because so many employees were vaccinated, That still meant that the rate was higher in the unvaccinated. However, an admittedly imprecise estimate of vaccine effectiveness dropped from more than 90% to about 43% over the course of July.
2: Eric, I think these types of reports highlight many important features. First, the denominator. One has to make sure one understands who's at risk to be able to compare the rates properly because... It's easy to get caught up in the numerator with one number being bigger than the other. And that can be confusing to many. We also need to understand that our testing processes for COVID are more aggressive than for other respiratory viruses, which is a good thing because we need to identify cases and therefore limit transmission by quarantine and isolation strategies, routine public health efforts we also need to understand the severity of illness which we've talked about already but if OC43 or HKU1 were circulating other coronaviruses that cause seasonal colds we may not be as concerned and nor should we and i'm not convinced that sars-cov-2 is going to go away my hope is we turn it into a common cold just cuz i think it's too well entrenched across the human population for us to be able to eradicate it. It makes me think a bit about the Mumps Challenge, which we published about a decade ago, where at one of our universities, there was a big outbreak of mumps. And what we learned there was that a lot of individuals who had been vaccinated, their immunity had waned, and they were more susceptible to become infected and have a mild illness. And then revaccination, limited further outbreaks, leading to a third vaccination. Uh, general recommendation. That reminds me that I wonder if in the 90s, we had a lot of asymptomatic transmission of certain viruses that boosted our immune system, therefore minimizing the risk of disease later on, and that we didn't necessarily eradicate transmission, but we did eradicate disease. And by truly eradicating transmission, we may have changed the dynamics of how we boost our immune response in an asymptomatic way. So I think that we have to be careful about overinterpreting and drawing analogies from other pathogens. But we may well boost ourselves through asymptomatic acquisition. In the background of vaccination, so we don't get severely ill, that might be a way that we better control this pathogen. Of course, the real challenge right now is how many people are unvaccinated and therefore severe illness occurring. And the hypotheses of what the biology may be need experimental evidence to better define what is true and therefore what we can build our policy around.
0: So what do you conclude about how well the COVID vaccine is protecting people at this point?
1: Steve, I can see how the numbers seem discouraging. As of a few months ago, it looked as if the vaccines were going to be a quick way out of the epidemic and clearly they don't offer complete protection. But it's important to keep in mind something we mentioned before that's not discussed in this study. While vaccinated people are getting infected, the vast majority are not getting extremely ill. I think that as we learn more, we're likely to find that at least for now, the vaccine is protecting fairly well against serious illness. This isn't as good as we'd hoped, But it does make the vaccine more comparable to some partially effective vaccines like that for influenza. So, as Lindsay discussed earlier, having a vaccine that protects against illness or severe illness may be the most important aspect of its action. While it would be nice to have something that prevented transmission, we may not have that, at least right now.
0: So, given all of these issues, what should we be doing today?
1: I think there are a few answers. First, to some extent, We need to be reconsidering the precautions against transmission that have largely been abandoned. While masking seemed less important in the past, it's clearly becoming important again. And I think that it's equally important for physicians to tell individual patients that, despite any local regulations, there's a lot they can do to decrease the risk that they will be exposed to the virus. Second, it's important to remember that much of the epidemic in the United States is being driven by the unvaccinated. Our first priority should be to ensure that they receive the vaccine. As Lindsay mentioned before, this could contribute a lot more to the control of the epidemic than for example, additional doses of the vaccine. But finally, there are additional doses of the vaccine and that might help. We don't really have much data either on the efficacy or the safety of that approach, but we should have more soon. But I'd keep in mind that additional doses help boost the immune response to the original virus. We hope that provides more protection against variants like Delta, but we don't yet know how well it'll work. More targeted boosters might be available in the future, but they aren't an option right now.
2: So Eric, the most important consideration, as you noted, is we need to get everyone vaccinated, an initial vaccine series, both across the US as we watch many of our communities have overwhelming infection, hospitalizations, and the ICUs are overrun, but also globally, because globally, the viral burden is where variants will emerge from. So it's both important from an equity standpoint, as well as a control of this epidemic and minimizing the risk of variant emergence. As we think about boosters, which are attractive. One needs to understand, as you suggest, is it a booster to the original strain, a circulating strain? How much of a booster is needed? How far after the last immunization should a booster be given? And this, of course, I'm referring to people with normal immune systems, because I think it's different in those with weakened immune systems, where the initial vaccine series may not work as well, and we're trying to bring out a primary immune response. So we need to think a little more nuanced in how we use third or additional doses of vaccinations for which population, but it's very important we get a layer of community immunity as broadly as possible, as quickly as possible to the global community. We also need to think about, as we talked earlier, about other viruses. It's not just SARS-CoV-2. Our precautions, masking, distancing, respiratory etiquette, really helps us for all respiratory pathogens. And as we go into the winter, I worry a lot about a rebound in RSV, influenza, as well as SARS-CoV getting a whole lot worse. When it's cold outside, we congregate and we may not be wearing our masks or being as careful given the COVID fatigue. So I think these are things that we all have to carefully think about as we try to get society back to normal with our schools reopening and the other activities that need to happen, but they need to happen safely.
1: Let me reiterate something that you just said, Lindsay, and that is about the utility of a third dose of vaccine. And again, I'd start off by saying we don't have great data to support third doses for non immunocompromised individuals right now. The goal of a third dose of vaccine is to primarily keep the people who already got two doses healthier. But remember, two doses are working pretty well to control severe disease, we think, although we haven't seen great numbers for that yet. And those people can transmit and we don't know if a third dose will influence transmission. So it's important to remember that a third dose of vaccine for people who are already vaccinated might benefit them and is likely not to have a tremendous public health impact. What would make a huge difference to the public health in general and to decreasing transmission would be vaccinating the unvaccinated. And so I think that as we think about our incentives and mandates and ways of getting vaccine to people, it's important to keep in mind that for the good of the entire community, it's very important to emphasize getting vaccine to people who don't have it yet.
2: Eric, I'm not sure we know if a third dose will have a greater impact on improving my health and protecting me from getting sick, or if it actually will boost my immunity so my mucosal surfaces are better able to control and prevent the virus from significantly replicating. So, at least in my mind, it's an open question what boosting may or may not do to transmission. But ultimately, we need to rigorously study what does a third dose do in the general population to understand how it fits into the public health strategy? But without question, what's most important is first doses to everyone who's not received it. Otherwise, healthcare systems get overrun as we are witnessing. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.